found on the inside of our bulletin. This is Philippians 3, 1 through 11. We now move into a new chapter of our series called The Joyful Christian. If you remember, I talked about the point that, you know, you can be a Christian and be miserable. It's true. I've lived it before. But God calls us to be joyful Christians. Uh, it was C.S. Lewis said, we all know the proof of joy. Uh, it shows that what we have satisfies the heart. And so what does it mean to be a joyful Christian? Well, Philippians is Paul's uh, psychological handbook on what it means to be a joyful Christian. Uh, the word mind is mentioned over 16 times. So how we think makes a difference in how we live, excuse me. So chapter one was all about the first spiritual secret, which is single-mindedness. And regardless of the circumstances, everything going around, you have to put Christ as the goal, as the aim, as the single-minded pursuit of your life. Number two, we talked about people and in relationships to be submissive-minded, to become a servant like Christ did. And ironically, by becoming a servant and looking to submit your interests, you discover that you have victory because of living in the path of Christ. And now we move to chapter three. Chapter 3, the secret, uh, the word is spiritual mindedness. We're going to talk about heavenly things and we're going to talk about earthly things. But the third secret to being a joyful Christian is spiritual mindedness. Listen to Paul speaking in Philippians 3. And he's speaking about these people who have come into church and are causing trouble. Finally, my brother Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people, excuse me, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Well, I was bored this week and I found myself with an overflow of cash. And so I needed to find some way to spend it. I know that you guys deal with these same problems as I do. I have too much money, I need to spend it some way. So I went to my favorite site, eBay, in search of what sort of goods I could get with my excess of money. And lo and behold, what I found. Uh, some of these had already sold, unfortunately, but uh, there was a winning bid for the tomb above Marilyn Monroe sold at $4.6 million. It was actually Mickey Mantle's tomb, uh, but um, you know they had a bit of a falling out, right? So Richard Posh bought the tomb, 
And Richard Posh gave instructions to his wife that when he was dead, to bury him face down so he could gaze upon Marilyn Monroe. Well, needless to say, she acquired some debts. And so it was time for Richard to go. And so she put the plot on eBay, and sure enough, some un, uh, unidentified businessman went ahead and picked it up for a cozy 4.6 million. And so now he is a rarefied audience. You have Marilyn Monroe on one side, Hugh Hefner to the left, and now whoever this person is right above. But oh, there's so much more. If you're interested, you can buy a Navy F-18A Hornet for 1.03 million. Indeed, Mike Landia listed this F-18 Hornet, so when those guys are flying over, you can say, look, I can have one of those for myself. And for only 1.08 million, which is pretty good because the U.S. government pays 29 mil for each one of theirs. It, is, uh, it arrives unassembled, so you can put it together and send it to the terrorists of your choice. And indeed, if you want not just the jet, but the bomb racks, you can pay an extra nine million and have a fully outfitted F-18 Hornet. In case you didn't want that, perhaps you want your own town, such as the town of Bridgeville, California, that sold for 1.77 million in 2002. Indeed, it has 30 residents, 83 acres with eight houses, a cafe, and a post office. Sounds like a perfect little town that you would want to own, right? Well, it was a poor investment because just a couple of years later, it sold again on eBay for $1.25 million. Finally, if you want an Atlas F missile base, you can pay $2.1 million. If you want a rural retreat, don't build a house, rather buy a silo. And you can go ahead in the Adirondacks of New York, set up a little shindig there, and lo and behold, if there's radiation, you don't have to worry about it. You just cap the top, wait a thousand years, and come on out. 2.1 million, it can be yours. By the way, Power Lunch with Warren Buffett is auctioned every year, probably about 2.6 million, if you want to have lunch with Warren Buffett. You know, it's interesting what society puts a value on. You know, some people's trash is another people's treasure. Society puts a value on things, but they also put a value on people, don't they? The things that we have, whether tangible or intangible. And as much as we like to say it doesn't matter to us, we do care. We feel the label placed around our neck of how much we're worth. How does society value us? Well, how do we value ourselves? Maybe it's the tangible things you own, your possessions and your bank accounts, the things that we can see. But maybe it's the intangible things, your reputation, your fame, your achievement. You know, much of our life is working on making that goal. But I want to suggest to you that the most important person that values us is God. So the question is, how does God put a price tag on us? What things does he use to value us? Most of us would say that it's religion. It's the goodness that we show or the adherence we have to whatever religious tenets that we've created. It's what you do, it's how you live your life, it's who you are. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, I often try to, as uh, long as possible, not tell people I'm a pastor. 
Uh, you know, so they talk to me and, you know, they may use some language that they normally use. And then they ask, what do you do for work? And I say, oh, I'm a pastor. And, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. To which I say, you say that all the time. You know, I kind of step in that role as God for a little while, you know. And it's interesting at funerals, you know, for most of the time, I'm sort of one of those guys on the side. But all of a sudden, I become very important. God becomes very important when we reach the end of our lives because the balances, so to speak, come out and the weighing begins of the value of a person's life. And so Paul is coming and he's saying that the value system that you're living by, Philippians, world, Redeemer, church is all wrong. You think your value is based on the things, the intangibles and the tangibles of your religion of how good you are, how often you come to church on Sunday, on how much you give in the offering plate, on when you withhold from gossip, on when you are better than the guy next to you, at least for a couple of days. But Paul says, stop. The gospel is a new value system, not based on your religion and your performance, but rather based on grace, based on the gospel. That this gospel that is from above is not good advice, but rather it's good news. That someone has come and supplanted your religion with his crucifixion and resurrection. That your life can be based not on your religion and the things you have done, but rather on Jesus Christ and what he has done. Imagine what life would look like for you if you lived your life by a new value system. Not by what everybody thought about you making the grade at the dinner party? What about if you didn't value yourself by what you saw in the mirror and how you were keeping score in the world? How your parents thought about you? You know, some of us, we look in the mirror, we hate what we see. We look at our lives and we say, you'll never measure up. What if we didn't value our lives? What if there was a different value system, not by the earth, but rather a heavenly value system? that moved us from worst, if you will, to first. Well, that's what Paul is saying, that you don't have to jump through all these spiritual hoops. But in this passage, we're discovering that some people are not buying it. And that some people then, and they still don't buy it now. That it's earthly things and it's heavenly things. And when you put them together and you throw them in a pot, it all works out, we hope. But Paul's spiritual secret is to have a spiritual mind. One focused not on things here and value here, but one focused on things above. And so the key word for Philippians 3 is count. Be an accountant. Count your earthly things or count your heavenly things and decide which one you will value. Because the truth is you have to lose your religion to get to Jesus Christ. It's only in the loss of everything that we gain the greatest thing. So we're going to look at three things you need to give up if you want to grab hold of Jesus Christ. Number one, you gotta give up on religion. Strange in the church saying that, but you gotta give up on religion. Number two, you gotta give up on accomplishments. And finally, number three, you gotta give up on yourself in your life. Give up on religion, give up on accomplishments, give up on your life. All right, let's walk this out. Philippians 3.1, give up on religion. Finally, my dear brothers, writes Paul, rejoice in the Lord. To write the, thing, the same things for you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Notice to rejoice 
not in your accomplishments and performance, but in the Lord. And then he gives a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, what is, what is he talking about? He's talking about these people that we've come to know as the Judaizers. Okay, what happened when Christianity came, the first disciples were all Jews. And so they already were born into the Jewish religion. They already uh, did the same fasts that people did. Uh, but they claimed that their uh, sufficiency was in Christ. But because they were Jews, they still did some of the Jewish practices. Some of the Jews said, those don't matter in terms of salvation. But others said, it's Jesus Christ and these things. But now the gospel goes out in Acts 10. It goes to a Gentile city. Those who aren't Jews accept the gospel and become Christians. And some of these Jewish leaders say, uh-uh, this can't happen. It's, they're the Gentiles, they're the dogs, that's what they called them. They don't get to have salvation. Unless they become Jews by conversion and obey our practices, it doesn't matter what they say about Jesus Christ, it's not enough. So Paul, they come everywhere where Paul goes, they're on his heels, snapping at him. And so Paul says to the Philippians, look out for these dogs. It's actually not you Gentiles who are the dogs that these Jews are calling, but they're the dogs because they don't understand that salvation is by Christ. Look out for these evildoers. Now these Jews are not promoting evil. They're not saying you uh, don't have to love people. You don't have to make God first in your life. They're not saying any of those things. But what they're saying is the basis of your salvation, the basis of what God thinks about you is those things. And Paul's saying that that is such a twisted thought compared to grace that they're actually teaching evil. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's speaking of circumcision. Remember the Jewish people, it was a sign that they belonged to Judaism. The circumcision of their bodies, the very place from where life came, it was like an identification mark, like a tattoo. They're saying these folks, if, they're, if they don't get circumcised, they are not saved. Regardless of what Jesus did, they have to do it. But Paul said, look out for them. In a different place, uh, actually in verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul said a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's what's changed in your heart, not your body. It's what God has wrought in you, not what you have wrought in yourself. God said in Ezekiel 700 years before, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. See, Paul is saying that your accomplishments, whatever you do that's religious, cannot bring you approval before God. Rather, it has to be God doing a work inside of you. We need to worship by the Spirit of God, not performing sacrifices, not going to a temple, but rather with sincerity of heart, praying to God and worshiping Him, Jew or Gentile. And Paul says, finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. He's not talking about our body. He's talking about the value we put in things. 
our accomplishments, the things that we put before God on that scale at the end of the day to say, I'm worthy, it's enough, take me in. When I ask people all the time, why do you think you're going to go to heaven and they're not Christians? Their answer is simple, because I'm good enough. I've done good things compared to who? And how much is enough? Paul's saying, nothing you do is enough. It's only by the grace of Christ. And so Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh because we're not saved by the advice that Christ gives us. We're not saved by the teachings of our founder. We're saved by the founder. I don't know if you saw this article uh, where Anne Rice came out on Facebook and uh, bid farewell to Christianity. Anne Rice is the famous writer of the vampire novels, very famous. She says, today I quit being a Christian. But with these words, Anne Rice delivered a wake-up call for organized religion. The question is whether it will be recognized as such. I remain committed to Christ as always, she wrote, but not to being Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed. I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. She's basically saying I've had it up to here with the religious hoops I have to jump through and the lives unseen that are being beaten down, if you will, by this system of performance. According to a 2008 study by Trinity College, religiosity is trending down sharply in the country. They found that these pe people who call themselves Christians have fallen by 10 percentage points since 1990 while the percentage of those who claim no religious affiliation has doubled in the same span. What's going on? People are trying religion and are finding no peace and no satisfaction. I'm talking to you not about religion, but what I want to talk to you about is the gospel. You know, some of you are irreligious. Like Ed Rice, you've basically gotten off the religion train, but you've moved to the irreligion train. There's no way I can keep doing all these things that I'm supposed to do. I'm bailing out. But the gospel is something completely different. And so we have to give up on our religion. Maybe you're here for religion. Maybe you're here to punch the clock, so to speak. I come on Sunday. That's what a Christian does. I go ahead and serve. I put my money in the plate. Uh, I jump through the various hoops that I need to, and I try to move the needle. You know, it's kind of a win-lose, a gain-loss. Sunday, I'm there, and then I leave, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going off the deep end. But Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm coming around, and it's up and down, up and down. But the reality is what we're trying to do is control God. We're trying to just make it over the edge. And sooner or later you get tired of it. Because religion doesn't give, it only takes. And so you have to get rid of religion. This religion I'm talking about to embrace Christ. You have to get rid of works righteousness to embrace uh, grace. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. Jesus Christ who has come from above and says, I'm here to give you value, not based on what you have done, but based on what I have done. 
So I don't know what your system of things is. I don't know what the hoops you're jumping through. You may not even know that. But I encourage you to sit down. What is it that I'm doing to check off, to count myself as worthy of the love of God? Because if you continue on that path, you'll never find satisfaction. And if you're trusting in yourself for salvation, you will not make the cut. For it is by grace we are saved, through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. So it's in the loss of everything that we gain the greatest thing. We have to give up on our religion. But number two, we have to give up on our accomplishments. Paul now moves into an offensive mode with these Judaizers. And he says, if, if you're saying that I need to perform these works and these religious things to have approval with God, well, guess what? I'm better than all of you. Look at verse 4. Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, look at me. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm not a mixed blood. I'm all Israelites. There's not Gentile anywhere in my bloodline. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew that these people knew. Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob who became Israel's favorite sons. And they were born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Israel's first king was from Benjamin. Granted, it didn't work out so well. But in Absalom's rebellion against King David, the only tribe that stuck with, uh, stuck with King David were the Benjamites. He's saying, I'm with these guys. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. There's no higher level of acknowledgement by my faith community, by my nation, than becoming a Pharisee. We think of that word in derogatory terms here, but it wasn't then. It was something to be achieved. Indeed, he studied under the high priest Gamaliel. He was educated at the top level. As to zeal, he says in verse 6, a persecutor of the church. Paul was so zealous, so much of a Judaizer, that he said that anyone who's preaching this gospel of Christ, I need to go stamp them out. He was there and assisted in the stoning of Stephen. He was going and arresting these Christians and bringing them back for trial when Christ met him on the road. He said, to sum it all up, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has a very, very impressive religious pedigree. More than I could ever hope for. More than those men could ever hope for. But then Paul turns the corner in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever of all of these things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This word counted is an accounting term. He's pulling out his ledger. He's listed all of his assets. But he says, whatever these things, these gains I've had, these religious accomplishments in my life, I count them as loss. Indeed, everything of them compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's not saying they're bad things. He's just saying when I weigh the ledger, I count and I see the infinite value of being valued by God, not because of myself and my accomplishments, but because of Him 
I count all of these things as loss, as of compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, the scripture says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, the truth of the matter is some time ago, Paul crossed over the line. He was a company man, walking the line, doing what a righteous Jew would do. And then when he met Christ, he had to make a decision. Am I going to walk the way of the path, preaching something I know that isn't true, or am I going to preach the gospel of Christ? And Paul stepped over the line, and his life would never be the same. This guy was a Pharisee? Not anymore. This guy was one of the heads of Israel? Not anymore. This guy was supposed to be righteous? Not anymore. See, Paul counted the cost. And he said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Count word, that's a perfect tense. In other words, I've made my decision. I'm never going back. I count them as rubbish. This word rubbish is one of my favorite Greek words. It only appears here. It's called uh, skubala. Okay? Skubala, the only way to describe skubala is the same of what comes out of the back end of a horse, if you know what that is. He says, I count it as scubala, that I may gain Christ. Notice he has to do that in order that he may gain Christ. You can't have it both ways. It's either here or it's there. I count it as law lost, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the religious law, but having that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith in Him. That I might truly find my identity, not in my things, but in Him. That I might have a new righteousness, not trusting in this religious treadmill that I run on and on again, trying to get faster. But rather through believing that God, through His uh, death and resurrection has given me new life. They've said that there's different stages in a man or woman's life. It looks something like this. I've moved through some of them. In the beginning, when you set off on your own, it's all about survival, right? You gotta find a job, you gotta get an apartment, you gotta, you know, fight to make it, right? And then you get married. Maybe you get a little bit of a bigger place and the baby comes on the way and you're just trying to keep it together. But sooner or later you find your feet, right? Sooner or later, it's not month to month, you move from survival to stability. Okay, I'm not breathing as hard, I'm living life. I'm going ahead and I'm making it, I'm stable. But it's not enough to be stable. I, I have a desire for more than simply to live. I want to succeed. And so I move from survival to stability to success. Maybe you move toward the top of your field. Maybe you are that homemaker that you always wanted to be. Whatever those accomplishments are. But you discover sooner or later that success is not enough. Indeed, when you go further in your life, you realize that there's something more you want. You want significance from survival to stability to success to significance. And so you may now take your money 
and put it into some charitable trust. You may look to volunteer, you may look to do these things because you realize that the value, the most valuable things aren't the things that have anything to do with money. But the truth of the matter is that even if you move through this path to accomplishments, you'll never make it to the place where you feel like I've done enough. I've done enough with myself. I've done enough in the eyes of people. I've done enough before God. If that's your ticket, I don't know what castle you're trying to build. I don't know what monopoly game that you're playing. I don't know what accomplishments you're building up. Maybe it's not your religion. It's all this other stuff. But you're trying to find a stairway to heaven. And all you're finding is pain. I don't know if you're young. I don't know if you're older. I don't know where you're at in terms of your success or your failure. But Paul shows us the path to salvation is to count our accomplishments as nothing in order that I may gain Christ. I have to lose everything that I may gain the greatest thing. I have to lose everything that I may gain Him, having a new righteousness, a new righteousness by faith, where I'm somebody, not because I made a name for myself, but because Christ made a name for me. And I can focus now, rather from having to gain stuff, to learning and knowing about this person who has imputed the value of his life to me. I have to give up on my accomplishments. I have to give up on my religion. Finally, I have to give up on my life. I count all these things as loss. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The deepest desire of your heart, what you were made to do, is to know the one who made you. To know him. That's your deepest desire. Any other track that you're on will leave you empty. Paul says, I give it all up that I may know him and it's actually the way it's uh, put is in the manner of his resurrection. I want to know this one who has risen from the dead. I want to know this one who has such power that he commands the wind and the waves. I want to know this one who has such love that he would lay his life down for me. He is my magnificent obsession. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the sharing of his sufferings. I want to know him in the way how he gave up everything for the will of his Father. I want to experience complete surrender, becoming like him in his death. In other words, being transformed as I gaze upon the beauty of Christ, becoming like him. That when I die, the death will not have its hold on me, that rather I will not go to my death, but through my death. And I will know Jesus face to face. I dated some different girls as I was younger, and then I found my wife. I found the love of my life. And as I realized what life I would give up in order to have this new life, it wasn't a whole lot of difficulty as I ran the numbers and counted the value. 
Could I marry her and continue to have these other relationships? No, I couldn't. See, in order to gain her, I needed to lose them. And as I looked at her, and I realized the joy that I could have in knowing her, in being with her, in living out my life with her, I counted this loss that I might gain her. You know, if you're here for religion, I don't have a whole lot for you. I suggest you go somewhere else because it's no fun. You're not going to find any satisfaction. Try some other stuff. But if you're here for grace, if you're here to know Christ, if you've gotten to the end of yourself, if you finally discovered I'm bankrupt, I thought I had all this stuff and it's nothing. If you want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and sharing in His sufferings as you become conformed more and more to Him, He's right here. He's right now for you. You will experience peace for the first time in life. But you have to focus your mind not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. For these things of the earth are lies. But this thing of the truth, of, of heaven, is true. Have a submissive mind. Have a single mind. But have a spiritual mind. My worth is not based in here. It's a bank that's up there. And it's a bank that will never break. For he who worships God, he who puts their trust in God will never be ashamed. And will never, ever be poor. In the lost of everything, that's when we gain the greatest thing. Put your faith and value in Jesus Christ alone. For he's more than worth all that you have. Let's pray. Lord, I certainly have run the treadmill. Trying to be a good person. Trying to have it all together. Trying to somehow build a stairway. Where you would look at me and say, this guy's alright. But truth be told, Lord, my and our works are filthy rags compared to your righteousness. Jesus, thank you that you've revealed to us a new value system from heaven. A value system in which we, who are so poor in works, could become so rich by the blessings that you've given us. Lord, help us to trade in the things of this world. That we might know you in the power of your resurrection. In the blessing of sonship that you give us to walk before the Father. This is our heart's prayer, Lord. We ask for you to move. In Christ's name, amen.